We have a lot to get through for this one. I have twice as many notes on this to get through as I normally do on a Wednesday. And uh, I don't know that we will cover that. I may, I may skip over parts of this, but we will, we will see. We need to do a deep dive. We're only covering about, what, half a dozen words? <laughs> but we need to do a deep dive on one of them to really get the understanding of what's going on with this and to see what the helmet of salvation is. So a lot of times people look at the helmet of salvation and since it covers our head, it leads many to think that it is a guard for our mind, but that would seem to duplicate what's going on with the other pieces of armor. I don't see the pieces of armor being in duplication. I see each one as having something unique and something to bring to the fight. And since the shield does an effective job of quenching all the fiery darts of the wicked one, I don't see that we need a helmet to guard our mind anymore. So Paul must have something else in mind. So we're going to take a look at what else may have been in mind on this and then see examples of it in Scripture. And last week we were looking at the shield of faith. In the shield of faith we saw that it quenched all the fiery darts. Quenching was something that was done to, in order for it to be quenched, there had to be something on fire. Something had to be burning. And quench means to either extinguish it or to eliminate its fuel supply. And the way that we fuel those fiery darts is to give thought to the things the enemy gives us to think on. So the best thing to do is to give thought to the things that God gives us to think on and not the things that the enemy does. So when he puts those things in, recognize the type of stuff he'll put in your head and don't give thought to them. Well, you know that pain you had in your body is going to become something like this and you begin to think on it while well, you're letting that thing catch fire on the inside of you. You just go over what the Word of God says and stand on that and stay there. But here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, I did not change the reference up at the top there to 17, but you can do that on your, on your own. It is correct the rest of the way on through. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, up until now, we have had two words that we are looking at. First off, Paul has said to put on. We put on, the, put on the whole armor of God, or take up, as it is. And we saw that analambano was used for the shield of faith as take up, to take to oneself. We did a, a look at all the occurrences of this, and we saw that almost half of them were about Jesus being taken up into heaven. The idea of the word is to take something from a lower state, raise it to a higher state, but it, in none of the occurrences that we saw in the word was it a putting down and taking up, putting down and taking up. Jesus ascended once, did not come back down. He will not come back down until he comes back for his church. And then, of course, when he comes for the second coming. The um, word put on was also used. So we had take up and put on. And that was talking about sinking into clothing or to put on or to close oneself an array. And so over the last couple of weeks, we looked at sometimes he said put on uh, the breastplate of righteousness or take up the shield of faith or take up the whole armor of God. And we looked at some of the differences that were there in those words. But here in this one, we are going to have a brand new word used in this section of Scripture. It's not brand new in the word. It's actually used more than most of the other words we were given. It's, uh, I believe, a total of 50, uh, I had it in my head, 54, 56, 
50, 50, yeah, um, we're looking at about 56, 57 times that this, this is used in the Word of God. It comes from the Greek word dekomai. It means to take, receive, accept, and approve. Um, Vines adds with a heartiness in the taking or in the receiving. In the New Testament, this is from one of the uh, uh, volumes that I have that most people don't. It um, breaks it down into a threefold pattern. First off, to receive someone or to welcome them. Second, to take hold of or to see something. And third, to approve or accept something. So in taking a, a real close look at this, I went through a particular uh, help that I have that breaks down the uses of these things in the, uh, in the King James. So when it says it's used 50-some times, it then breaks it down for me. And it tells me this. This word was used 52 times. It is translated receive. 52 times it is translated receive. Four times it is translated take. Two times it is translated accept. And they had in the listing one time take up. However, I did a search on that and turned up that it, there are zero times for it to be used as take up. And that was in the same within the same source, so I don't know why they put that in there. Of these times that it is used, 33 times is in the Gospels. Paul uses it 14, Acts uses it 9, Hebrews and James each use it once. And John also used it once in his, uh, his Gospel. So the other 32 times are in the other three, three Gospels. So what I wanted to do is to first off, to examine something because I challenged, I didn't do this last time we went through this, and so this time I decided, you know what, I'm going to challenge this uh, that I have, that there is a threefold pattern for this use. I wanted to really get to know the threefold pattern for its use. Now, I brought this over. You probably have never seen this before, but what I tell you, I have a, a big hitter next door that is such a big hitter, I don't usually use it. I pulled it out this time. This is called Kittles. This is one volume. There are ten of them. And they do nothing but go over Greek words. Uh, very fine print. <laughs> it's very small print. And he has the nasty habit of writing sentences in Greek and in English. And so you have to be able to follow along both. So as soon as he switches over to the Greek, it slows me down a good bit. And one of the reasons I don't go there a whole lot. But I wanted to, to get a feel, what is his take on this word? Because I was having a different idea of this word. And I wanted to make sure it was backed up by other sources. And so I got all the, the best sources that I could to check this out. Because I, what I basically did was I challenged this second one to take hold of. I challenged basically, why is this word translated take? And so what I did was first off is I went into the, into the Bible and I took all the times in the King James Bible and I actually have these in the King James so I try and new King James it in my, in my head before it comes out my mouth but I won't uh, get a hold of it done that way. And I want you to just see when these times are that it is used for take. So four times it is said that this happens. Uh, I actually have... Uh, 
more than four times when I did the, do the search on that. I came up with one, two, three, four, five. I came up with five. And uh, one of these times is actually translated a little bit differently in um, the one I converted over to New King James. So let's read these. Luke chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. If you want to write these down, you can. They're not in your outline. Luke 16, 6 through 7. And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. Now, I want you to get a picture of this. The word is translated here, take. Is there any taking going on? If you put yourself in the situation, and if the man who is a steward has the books, and if he says, take your bill and change it, what is he doing? He has to take the bill and hand it to the person because he has charge of it. Hand it. So what is the person on the other end actually doing? They're receiving. They're not taking. To take it would be to come without his permission. Or to take it, it was just laying there, he'd go over there and take it. But he's, he's receiving because he's handing it to him. Here's your bill. Take it and write this. So there, there's, it's translated take, but you can understand it better as receive, can't you? Luke 22, verse 17. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. When he said, Take, when he said, and he took the cup. Now, this was the most difficult one that I had in the entire group. And he took the cup. What is this? What is this? Now, when I picture all this, this stuff going on, I see someone as either having already or Jesus has the cup and they fill it. And then he, he takes that, or he basically receives that, but it might be, you could almost look at that one as more of a, of a taking. But this is the, the one time, the one time in the Word of God where it can possibly mean something to go and to take something. But since we're not there, we don't know if he took the cup because it was given to him, and then he received it, or, or that. But I, I didn't want to throw that one out. I wanted you to see it. Luke 22 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 8.4 now, I didn't like how this was, was reading in the King James. So if you see this in the King James, the King James puts a phrase in there that I'm not dealing with because the phrase is not there. There's another time when the King James translates a word take, but it's a phrase the King James inserted. The phrase is not there. I went back to the actual Greek. I pulled up the Greek text. I said, I got to see, is this phrase there? Because it's just listing as a phrase, and it is not. It is not there. So in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, this is from the New King James, imploring us with much urgency that we would, now instead of take there like the King James does it, the King James puts receive. Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift in the fellowship of the ministry, ministering to the saints. And well, if you're going to receive a gift, is there any taking? It's a gift. So if it's a gift, someone is giving it to you, so you therefore... Receive it. One more, and that is here, and that is Ephesians six seventeen. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Now, why is it so important that we understand this word as take or receive? Because for me, it changes the meaning. 
And we'll show you how this, this can be. Now let's take a look at some of the other uses for this. In 2 Corinthians 8.17, this is one of the two times, two verses that we see it used for accepted. For he indeed accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. He accepted. What's another word you could put in there? For indeed he took or he received. He received. For indeed he received the exhortation. He accepted the the exhortation. He didn't take it, did he? He received it. Now it said there accept it because the the meaning of of this is he heard it and he received it into his, he, he accepted it as an exhortation. But there's a receiving that is there, not a taking. It's important that we understand this because Paul switched words here. He's got a word he's already used in this for put on. He's got a word he's already used in this for take up. And he goes out and he gets this word which he hasn't used. Why is he getting this word? There has to be a reason for it. 2 Corinthians 11.4 This is the second time it is used translated except for if For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye received, and that is lambano, another spirit which ye have not received, lambano, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might might well bear with him. I left that one in the King James. I probably could have uh, been better off changing that one over. But here we see lambano and... In this word, um, in the same one. Now, here's what I found. It took a little bit of searching to find this. This comes from a Greek uh, um, work done by two Greek scholars, Grimm and Thayer. Thayer, you may know from his uh, dictionary. This note was the one that really helped me out with this. Once I saw this, I said, all right, we've got to find out what the difference is on this. There is a certain distinction do you remember, lambano is used by Paul in the spiritual armor. There is a certain distinction between lambano and decomai. More pronounced in earlier classical use in that in many instances, lambano suggests a self-prompted taking, whereas decomai more frequently indicates a welcoming or an appropriating reception. What Paul is looking at here, and I would argue with some of the translators, and just about all the translators translate this word, this verse, in the same way, but not all. They translate it as a take. I pulled up Young's Literal. There's a couple of translations actually out there. I'm just reading the one here for you. This comes from Young's Literal. You will notice something in the difference of the order. The order is in the Greek. This is the Greek order of the word. Many times the Greek order of the wording of our verses are changed because the Greek word order is different from our word order. So in order to make it more understandable, they have to sometimes change it. This is how it is. This is how the word order comes over in the Greek, and this is how he interpreted it. Verse 17. And the helmet of salvation receive and the sword of the Spirit, which is the saying of God. And the helmet of salvation receive. All right. Now, the reason that this is important is because 
if we are to receive the helmet, then the helmet needs to stay exactly as it is, and there's something about the helmet that is, that is needed. When I take up the shield of faith, I take up the shield of faith, and my actions put it into, into I put that shield out there in front of me. My actions are what's doing it. When I receive the helmet of salvation, there's something different that is going on. There's, this is the only one that is not really a take or a put on. This is something that I receive. So he says, receive the helmet of salvation. Now, most of the uses of this word in the King James and the New King James, most all of them are translated receive. I'm going to read you a couple from the Gospel. Matthew 10 and 14. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. There's no taking in that, is there? There's no hint of taking. There is, you came in, and they did not receive you. You presented yourself, you presented the gospel, and the idea here is that they did not receive you personally, they did not receive you because of what you preached. They did not receive you because of the works that you did. Because Jesus says, go into these cities. They're going in for a purpose. And whatever and whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Now, I could keep reading here in the Gospels, but constantly this is what we see. Matthew 10, 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. All four of those times are this word. It's a receiving. There's no taking involved with that at all. Most of the occurrences in the Gospels are along receiving people. They're either receiving Jesus, they're receiving Jesus' words, they're receiving the disciples, they're receiving the miracles that he's doing, they're receiving something. This is what this word is constantly used about in the Gospel. If anyone has any interest in seeing the rest of these, I am happy to text over to you all the other uh, references for this. John, he is to, his only use for this is in chapter 4, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So they received him on the basis of what he had done as far as the gospel is concerned. Acts 3.21 Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Speaking about heaven receiving things. Not heaven taking things. Acts 7.38 This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living articles to give to us. He received it on Mount, Mount Sinai and then he gave it to them. He didn't take them. Moses didn't take anything on Mount Sinai. He received what the Lord spoke to him. He received what the Lord showed him and wrote down those things. Um, Verse 59, same chapter. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's not saying, Lord Jesus, take my spirit. He's saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive it. They're the ones killing him. God's not killing him. God's not taking him. Chapter 8, 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. 
11 and 1. The, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Acts 17 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. 21 and 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Acts 22, 5. And also the high priest bears me witness and all the counts of the others from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains. I received letters. These are not things he took. These are letters that were written, giving him authority. He received that to uh, accomplish what it is that he wanted to do. Acts 28, 21. We neither received letters from Judea concerning you. This is when Paul was brought before trial. No letter came accusing him. No letter came listing his crimes. We didn't receive letters from Judea concerning you. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. There is no taking involved. There is only a reception. 2 Corinthians 6.1 We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There is no taking grace of God. You receive it. 2 Corinthians 7.15 And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all how you how with fear and trembling you received him. 2 Corinthians 8.4 Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. This one we'll probably come back to later on. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4 For he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, both those words receive are our word here, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You may well put up with it. There is a receiving, if you receive a different spirit, if you receive a different gospel. Second Corinthians, not talking about a taking, you're not taking, you're receiving. Someone comes along and preaches to you, someone comes along and teaches you something that is foreign, something that is not the gospel, and you receive it. 2 Corinthians 11, 16, 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool. Galatians 4, 14, in my trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God. Philippians 4, 18, indeed I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. None of these verses have anything about taking. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and you become followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. No taking involved there. They're receiving the word despite the affliction that is going on. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as in the truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Second Thessalonians 2.10 And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they may, might be saved. There's no taking the love of the truth. There's a receiving of it. And some people just don't receive that. Hebrews 11.31 By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. James 1.21 Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness. Absolutely no way that could be having any kind of a hint of a take. So I read all that to you and we read just about all the occurrences outside the gospel. 
of where this word is used to show you this word when it is used in the New Testament is almost always, it is almost always talking about receiving. It is not talking about me taking something up. It is not talking about me putting something on. It is about me receiving something. Something about it that I'm receiving. And again, Paul in that uh, 2 Corinthians 11.4, he uses it about a different spirit or a different gospel. You did not receive a different spirit. You did not receive a different gospel. Let's take a look at the helmet now. Now the helmet, it's a heavy piece of armor. You do not have the helmet on all the time. The helmet is not a piece of armor that you would keep on at all times. You put it on as you're going into battle because it's heavy, it weighs on your head, it wears you out. The, head, the, the, the thing is made of metal. It has that uh, horse fur for the Romans. It has that horse fur that they have and apparently the amount of horse fur and how long that, uh, that train is tells people your rank. It's a display of your rank. So I guess the shorter that, that is, the lower your rank, the longer that it is, the uh, greater your rank is. And I don't know, I didn't see any examples of that. I just heard that that was something that was, that was done. So take or receive the helmet of salvation. He's saying, telling them, receive the helmet of salvation, which would seem to indicate that something is being given and I need to receive it. I can become one who doesn't welcome it. I can become one who doesn't receive it. But he says, receive the helmet of salvation. Now, most time we look at the helmet as a protector of the mind, we said before, because uh, what is better protection for our thoughts than, than um, faith in God's Word? So I think the shield of faith certainly does a much better job of depicting that than the helmet would be. Since he depicts the attacks of the enemy as fiery darts, what would you rather have uh, being your protection in a battle with a fiery dart or a fiery arrow, a shield that is soaked in water that the, uh, will extinguish those fiery darts, or a helmet? I'd rather have the shield. If it hits my helmet, that tar, that fiery stuff, is going to splatter, and it's probably going to get on some parts of my head that are not covered. Because you can't cover the whole thing, but it was, it was there. So we look at some of the functions that this, uh, that this does and this helps us with, because I don't see it as being something as redundant. It's something to help us. Now, as the helmet goes, I think these are some blanks I put in your, your outline. It is one of the last pieces to go on. It is distinctive of an army. Every army has their own helmet. And even with the Roman one, if you had a different rank, you just had a longer uh, train or longer um, uh, uh, section of the horse hair that would come. And you've seen the pictures. It's, they uh, dye them red. And so it's, it's a beautiful looking helmet. The helmet would identify you to friend and foe. And it was very decorative. And so when you would go into battle the soldiers would put the helmet on. And so as you go into battle, what is the most visible aspect of a soldier in battle? It would be the helmet. The breastplate is going to be hidden somewhat behind a shield. It's going to be hidden somewhat by other people that are in front of you. 
But that helmet is out there on top. So if you look out, if you are a Roman soldier and you look out and you see a sea of red horsehair on top of a, a piece of metal, on, you know those are our guys. Oh, got it. Okay, thank you. Oh, you found some for the different... Gotcha. Yeah, there it is. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. But you, the, they're all the same red hair. It, you look out there, you're going to see, these are my guys. So that tells you what? We don't fight against those. If you have a different helmet on, those are the guys you're going to target. Those are the guys you're going to fight. So more so than anything else, more so than just protecting your mind, more so than, than being redundant on the other thing, what the helmet of salvation does, it is identifies you as in the army of God. It identifies you. You are saved because salvation for the Christian is very different from the rest of the world. Salvation for the Christian is faith in Jesus Christ and in the work that he did. The rest of the world has religion. The rest of the world has um, redemption, salvation, whatever they want to call it, by doing some kind of works, by being good, by appeasing their gods. And then hopefully, when we get to heaven, this is what's going on, that we will get in. The Christian religion is different. The Christian way of, of salvation, it is faith in Jesus Christ alone. How many times was Paul in his letters dealing with people who ventured off of this? Galatians is pretty much the whole letter is about that. How did you guys leave this? How did you guys go off of this? But he's constantly dealing with, with things that are affecting the simplicity of salvation. They even had to go all the way over to um, uh, Jerusalem one time and have this big meeting to decide what do we need to put on the new converts that are Gentiles to uh, have them be. And, and Paul's saying, we don't got to put nothing on them. They just need to have faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and other people are arguing different things and then finally they came up with the with the four things, the four things on the list, and uh, they all finally, all right, well, we'll agree to that, and so they all went out there with, with those four things. But you never saw Paul preach those four things. What you saw Paul do is you saw him preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So receive the helmet of salvation. God is going to give you something that is going to set you apart, going to make you very distinct. So the salvation distinguishes us from all others. As we know, Jesus is the only way. All religions are saved by man's work, but, but ours by the work of Jesus. Now, I was reading, I, those who were here earlier, I was telling them some things that I, I get this email, and I don't always open it because it makes me angry. <laughs> but something in the heading caught me. Uh, Franklin Graham apparently was uh, uh, calling out, I saw that Franklin Graham calls out evangelical false teachers in a pastor survey. Well, he didn't call any one out. He just called a group of people out in the survey. So let me read part of this to you because this may not be something that you had access to see. But this is in a, something that he posted up, um, on Monday. That would be September the 5th. So it's uh, not long ago he posted this thing. There was a, uh, a survey that went out to pastors. The survey found that only one out of every three Christian pastors polled in the United States possessed a biblical worldview. Only, let me read that again to you. You didn't hear this wrong. The survey found that only one out of every 
three, that's one-third of those polled, possessed a biblical worldview. The percentage was even lower for teaching pastors. Oh, that hurt. I don't know which 1,000 pastors this group surveyed, but the results are concerning. 39% of evangelical pastors they asked said there is no absolute moral truth and that each individual must determine their own truth. What a lie, Graham said. Graham blasted the one-third of surveyed evangelical pastors who believe that people who do enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven, labeling them false teachers. I'm right with, right with Graham on this. this that's his, uh, that is something. The survey also said that 30% of evangelical pastors do not believe that their salvation is based on having confessed their sins and accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. 30% of evangelical... We're not just talking... We're talking evangelical pastors do not believe that their salvation is based on having confessed their sins and accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. You wonder what they're preaching. The Bible is God's word from cover to cover, he said. It is the absolute truth. It is what counts, not our opinion. And that's how he concluded his, his little thing that he posted. Another result from the survey showed that 30% of the evangelical pastors polled believed that reincarnation is a real possibility. 30% believe that reincarnation is a real possibility. And 60% said they believe that a person's success in life is determined by their obedience to God. That means 40% of the poll pastors do not believe that your success in life is determined by how you obey or disobey God. 40% look at life as how you obey or disobey God has no bearing on your success. The survey also revealed that at least one-third of senior pastors polled believe that sexual relations between an unmarried couple who love each other is morally acceptable. One in three. The Holy Spirit is only a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity rather than a living, divine person. These are pastors. We're not talking about the world. One and three believe the Holy Spirit is only a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity, rather than a living, divine person. A person can reach complete spiritual maturity during their lifespan on earth. And the Bible is ambiguous in its teaching about abortion, enabling you to make a strong argument either for or against abortion based on biblical I don't know that I would consider those guys on my team. If you are going to be on the team of the army of God, you've got to put the helmet on. You've got to receive what the helmet is. The helmet is what God said it is. This is salvation. This is what being saved means. If you are going to receive the helmet, then you are going to receive the simplicity of salvation. Is belief in Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for our sins. And if you truly believe that and you truly believe that you will stand before the Father in heaven, it has to have an effect on how you live. 
But how you live does not affect your righteousness. It does not affect your salvation. You could still be overcoming some sins and still be saved. And of course, your condition is weakened. The stronger you get, the more mature you get, the more you shake these things off. It will have an effect on how you live and how you are successful down here. We know that from the Word of God. How many times has Israel fallen to um, unsuccessful situations because they disobeyed the Word of God? So, take the helmet of salvation or receive the helmet of salvation. Here it is. This is what it looks like to be in God's army. Put that on. There's a whole lot of people that profess to be in the army of God and are putting on a different person's helmet. Now, just make it over here into, into today. If you are going to watch a football game, what is the most distinctive feature that you have for your team? There's a whole bunch of teams that have similar colors. But the helmet tells you what it is. You can have a bunch of teams that are blue, but it's the Giants that have that big G. It's the Buffalo Bills that have that buffalo on the side. Each, each one is different. There's some teams that have white helmets, but it's the Colts that have that horseshoe. It's the Patriots. I think theirs are still white. They have that, uh, is it silver now? Miami Dolphins are white. Mm-hmm. And they have a dolphin on the side of theirs. The Raiders are silver. But they're distinguished from all the others because of that Raider symbol that's on there. If you just had a shot on the field that went from shoulders down, you may be able to pick out who the teams are. But if you had the Eagles and the Jets on the field, you might be a little challenged. But if you saw their helmets, you would know. So even for us, it's, it's that way. When you fought World War I, what was one of the most unique things that could tell you whether they were friend or foe? It was the helmet that they put on. The Germans had that spike. We didn't put that spike on the, the American helmets. And our helmets were shaped a little bit differently than theirs. And the Russian helmets were shaped a little bit differently, and they looked a little bit different yet. It tells you what side you're on. Because if you're not afraid, if you're not ashamed of the army, if you have confidence in your army, you've got no fear of being identified with them. But there are some people that have a fear of being identified with the army of God, and they have put on a different helmet. Their salvation is not the same, which is why you have poles out there one in three pastors believe this. Two or three pastors believe this. And is separating from the things of God. Let's take a look at some appearance in battle. The first one we come to is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What did Moses do? He changed helmets. He had on an Egyptian helmet. And he decided, nope, I am going to put on 
a Hebrew helmet. I'm going to put on a helmet that shows that I'm of the people of God. Now he put it on and uh, didn't like the fit. And he did take it off. But he did eventually come back and, and put it back on again. The Levites, they had it on during a party. As they were going around on the golden calves and Moses called out, Who is on the Lord's side? Verse 19 of Exodus 32. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And then he took the calf which he had made, burned it in the fire, ground it in the powder, and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. I always get amazed at that. This is one guy against two to four million people. And he made them drink it. <laughs> and Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Moses made them do some things they didn't want to do. Drinking their gold. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, and they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. All by itself, too. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp. But what has Aaron done? Aaron took his helmet off. Verse 26, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together themselves together to him. What is the sons of Levi saying? What are they doing? They got their helmet on. Now they had their helmet on. They didn't just put it on then. When this whole party thing was going on, they were not involved. That is a testimony to the leadership of the tribe of Levi and the way that they had taught their people to obey, which is one of the reasons that God gave them the priesthood. Because if you all would be this diligent to teach your people the things of God, so that when they were put under pressure, they didn't falter, then you will do the same thing to the people. That's why God put that in charge with them, because they demonstrated not just they would stand up for God, but they demonstrated we taught because all the sons of Levi. How hard do you have to get to, to work to get all of a tribe on one side and all of the other 11 on the other side? So they said, who's on the Lord's side? So then the rest of these verses, they talk about uh, how he's commissioned them to go out with your sword and to kill them. Now they were, if they're two to four million, you can understand there's uh, hundreds of thousands of Levites around here. And he said, put a sword on and go out and kill the people. But uh, we only had a total of uh, about 3,000. Only 3,000 killed. That means there was no big slaughter it means they knew who the leaders were. They knew who the instigators were who caused this thing to happen and they went out and they got them. They targeted the people. Otherwise, if you put a sword in each man's hand, that would mean each one would kill what? One, two, three? That number would be a whole lot higher than 3,000. But they were there. They witnessed. They saw. 
And so the people, they, they said, this is one of the ones who was leading them. This is one of the ones that was very aggressive in this. And they uh, executed them. Now, Elisha, Elijah had it on on the mountain sacrifice and in many times in the confrontations he had with Ahab. He had that helmet on. He was distinctive. Even under Ahab, how many times does he talk about, well, he never says anything good about me. <laughs> Remember when Micaiah was brought up? He never says anything good about me. What did, what did Micaiah have on? He had on the helmet. He had on the thing that made him distinctive. This is, I am different from them. When he spoke the word of God that came and all the other prophets spoke something different, he had his helmet on. The other ones were speaking in the name of Jesus. They didn't have their helmet on. They were, they were uh, playing for the other team. David stood against the giant in First Samuel 17, just reading a couple of verses here. 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Then all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What is David reasserting here? I am on the Lord's side. I fight for him, and this is my God. He had the helmet on. What happened to the rest of Israel? Seems like they put a different helmet on, didn't it? They at least took theirs off. They're all cowering in the corner. Daniel stood out and was blessed and persecuted because he kept his helmet on. He kept himself distinct from the very time that he came in and he said, I won't eat of the meat that is sacrificed to the idols. To him that was taking the helmet off. Praying three times a day to him that was keeping the helmet on. And he kept doing it. He wouldn't bow to other gods. He only worshipped his own God and the other people around him said, we can't get him except if we get him according to the laws of his God. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they certainly had their helmet on when everyone else took it off. When all the noise is being made, all the music is being played, they're the only ones that are standing because they had their helmet on. That engaged them in the spiritual battle, didn't it? If they had taken that helmet off, would they have been... Would they be making a stand about anything? Peter and John, they were persecuted because they kept their helmet on. And they were taken before in, in, uh, the, the leaders in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. How did they realize that? Because they had their helmet on. They had something that defined them as being with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed... That a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, 
that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Is this not a spiritual battle? They are coming against the gospel being spread. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So they basically tried to force them to take their helmet off. And Peter and John said, not going to do it. We're not taking our helmet off. We are going to preach the gospel. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to cast out demons in his name. We're going to heal people in his name. We're going to do what Jesus put us here to do. We are not taking our helmet off. That's all they wanted to do, take the helmet off. You can believe anything that you want to, but take the helmet off. Take that thing that distinguishes you as a child of God. Take that thing that makes, makes the mark to everyone else that's around. This person is a Christian. Their behavior is different. Their words are different. Their outlook is different thing they do is, is different. They're not like the world. One place in Scripture it said, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here also. <laughs> and they, they didn't like that. They're okay if they come on in and they don't keep their helmet on. Peter, uh, Paul faced adversary from Jews and Gentiles because he chose to put it on. Because he chose that in any city that he would go into, he would leave his helmet on and he would set himself as a follower of Jesus Christ. That salvation was not of the law. That salvation was of faith in Jesus Christ. And he got flack from the Jews because he wouldn't say that salvation was of the law. And he got flack from the Gentiles because they didn't like him coming against their gods and taking people from being their followers. But Paul would not take this helmet off. He stayed with it. I am a servant of the living God. Whenever he got before one of the kings in trial, what did he do? He proclaimed the message of God. What did the Lord Jesus even speak to him? Paul, you will appear before kings and queens and you will speak of my name. When he was on that boat and they were getting ready to be shipwrecked, he he said, no, the Lord said, no, I need you to appear before Caesar. And when he got before Caesar, guess what he spoke about? When he got before King Agrippa, what did he speak about? When he got before all the, 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 all the kings, whoever he was faced, he would speak about Jesus. He would preach about Jesus. One of the kings even said to him, Paul, you, you almost persuaded me. Why? Because he kept his helmet on. This is what salvation is. There's a whole lot of pressure in the world right now to uh, change your colors. Put a different helmet on. Put one on that looks a little more like the world. We're okay that you preach being right morally, but uh, all this stuff about the name of Jesus, you know, that's not so good. We don't want that. 
Today, you can preach all you want to in the name of Muhammad. But you can't preach all you want to in the name of Jesus. You can go into a school and you can cite uh, Islamic prayers. But look what happens if you try and cite prayers to God. You can read some foreign, some other uh, God's book. But what happens when you try and read your Bible? And it's sitting there. We need to raise up soldiers that are ready to stand up for the gospel. To not compromise. Not give in to the things of the world. Do you, I'll put this in your outline for you, do you put your helmet on or hide it? Because you put that helmet on, you will attract some attention. And the enemy's going to come after you. You just take that helmet off. You're not going to get nearly as much attention. So of all the things that I think it was, was going on here, I think Paul is looking at that helmet. And it says, it says very loudly what team you are on. Who you fight for. Who you stand for. And in the field of battle, that helmet is going to bring all the enemy against you. They're going to come against you because you've got that helmet on. We got to take you out. But the people that are on your side and they see that helmet and they're on your side. This is why in the Christian army if we believe in salvation, if we believe in the things that Jesus Christ told us to hold dear to, they got our helmet. We ought to be on their side. Not be bickering among ourselves like Paul and others would teach. Now Peter hid his leading up to the crucifixion. Remember that? He had his helmet on that all of a sudden he kind of took it off and tried to hide it. Then he tried to let out some words to try and hide it some more. So many, many other disciples did the same thing. They did put it back on later, but they took it off for a little while. You look at John, you look at Joseph of Arimathea, you look at the women that were around the cross, they certainly kept it on. But not everyone did. So it was on. They were ready to die for him. But then all of a sudden it came off. Then he put it back on. I think one of the things that will affect your spiritual warfare is are you willing to stand for salvation as God has it? Are you willing to be distinguished to all the world? This is my team. I believe in salvation through Jesus Christ and through none other. I believe in living my life in such a way as to please my God, not because I please Him to try and get saved, but because I am saved. I live my life to please Him. I live my life to seek out the will of God and to accomplish the will of God down here on this earth. That's the team that I'm on. I believe in the Holy Spirit that the way the Bible teaches it, that He is a member of the Godhead. He is the Spirit of God and He speaks to me. He is a person. Not some other thing that people want to try and say. I believe in the Trinity. I don't understand the Trinity. But I believe it. I believe that there's a heaven that we are going to. When we stand for these things, 
and having our helmet on. Not something that you necessarily have on. It's not like you have to have a shirt on that says, I believe in Jesus or, or all that sort of stuff. But it means when you get put into a situation and the name of Jesus is attacked, the church is attacked, will you take your helmet and put it quietly behind your back and not let anybody know? Or will you pull that helmet out and put it on your head? I have received salvation. It's not something that I adjust. It's not something that I change. I don't, I don't make salvation be what I want. As one out of three, two out of three people were doing in the Word of God, it seemed. Or, I'm sorry, not survey that they did. But even you go in the Bible, how many people in the Bible, how many people in the New Testament, how many people in the Old Testament seemed to be on God's team, but they didn't have the helmet on? Pharisees are supposed to be on the team, but they didn't have the helmet on. They had put some foreign thing on that allowed them to plot how to kill people that they didn't like. We've got to have God's helmet on. We're going to be in His army. And if we're going to be fighting this battle, we're going to have something on our head that's going to say, this is the team that I'm on. And it will speak to the enemy. Whoever wants to come against us, nope, I am not backing down. I am staying with this. This is what the Word of God teaches. And this is what is right. Father, we thank You. Then we put on that helmet and we engage in battle that the enemy knows we are a target. The enemy knows we are the ones he wants to come after. But we're here to make a stand. We're not here to be afraid and to back down. We can learn from the people who went on before us people in the Old Testament, people in the New Testament, who put that helmet on, made themselves distinctive as being on the side of God with the words that they spoke, with the things that they did. They demonstrated we are on the Lord's side. I thank you, Father, that we can be numbered among the Lord's army. And when we make a stand, we make a stand is one of you, one of your team. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.